0: Today on Chasing the viathan, we pursue the big question, how should we think about our food? My guest is Dr. Sarah Worth, professor of philosophy at Furman University. We discuss why the history of philosophy has been biased against our sense of taste, and I learn what the slow food movement is. So please, come have a seat with us and learn to listen with me. a little bit about uh you dr worth yeah we're talking about your book uh taste a philosophy of food um which is just i think everyone can relate to this topic uh it's really you know everyone's excited everyone about eats. food i think <laughs> yes <laughs> um so tell us uh, what inspired you to you know on your journey of philosophy and then specifically your journey of philosophy for food tell us about dr worth
1: yeah um, well, I am, let's see, I am a professor of philosophy and my, my specialty was and is philosophy of art and aesthetics um, mm. and specifically about um, reading and literature and narrative. Um, and how reading fiction impacts our emotions. So that's actually what my first book was about. And it's um, sort of where my focus has been for a long time. But honestly, I, uh, I gave birth to twins in 2006. And Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. Um, I was actually, uh, my husband was in Baghdad when that happened. And oh. so... Uh, they were actually seven months old by the time he came back. And so I had a really big question um, mm. f- facing me, which was, what am I going to feed them? Um, yeah. And so it seemed really odd to me to buy a jar of bananas at the grocery store when I had bananas on my counter. And it, it just it, the whole thing just seemed really weird. All of a sudden, um, the the baby food industry and so, uh, like a philosopher, but not a normal person, I started reading, and I started, <laughs> I started reading books about philosophy and food rather yes. than you know like new mom books. Um, and so I started reading about the philosophy of food, and um, it's uh, it's a relatively new topic in philosophy, uh, really mm. just maybe twenty, maybe thirty years old and at the same time it seemed to me the most obvious philosophical topic ever because it really is the the physical manifestation of the way that we interact with the world right we mm. we take what is outside of us and put it inside of us um and and that's that's a big philosophical question that 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 just sort of starts us out with the question of am I what I eat? Um, or in what ways is what I eat, who I am, or how does what I eat affect my, uh, my wakefulness or my consciousness or my levels of depression or my, you know, my energy level or my gut bacteria, or, you know, I don't know. Um, in in the beginning of the book, I say you know I give this uh, anecdote about my mom who said you know if you keep eating Cheerios at the rate that you've been eating them, you're going to turn into a Cheerio, and I <laughs> I just I panicked. Um, yes, yeah. I really I I mean I had had a dream where I had a giant hole in my belly, and I, I just I it right. was so powerful of an image that I just stopped eating Cheerios. Um, <laughs> and I think that that was a that was a, a a philosophical moment for me that that began when I was 6. So I didn't think seriously about it, but it, it when I started having to feed my kids and um I wanted to make my own baby food and and buy things organic at the at the farmer's market and then cook all the sweet potatoes myself. And my, my boys are actually just made of sweet potatoes, um, you know, but so it, it, that I really started thinking. And then and then I was able to teach a class on the philosophy of food because I, I teach at a, a great university and my chair at the time said, if you're excited about it, they'll be excited about it. You know, how bad could it be? Um, <laughs> and then... Sorry, that's good. Yeah. I mean, no, I mean, he was, he was great. And then uh, he really did give us a lot of leeway to, uh, to teach what we were interested in. And um, because I teach at a great university that has a lot of uh, support, I thought, you know, I don't want to just talk about food. I want to, I want to have a lab. Uh, I want to cook every week with all of my students. And so long, long, complicated story short, I was able to set up a thing with the food service company, and we um, we cooked every week with the head chef from the university, um, uh, something that was in line with whatever we were talking about in the class. And so, um, so awesome. almost overnight, I became the most popular teacher on campus.
0: <laughs> of course, yes. for college kids like oh man i get a i get at least one good meal yeah
1: yeah yeah um so it was it was fun and it was exciting and it's you know all of a sudden there's sort of a a serious moment where you can think about food um and and then i as the years went on i i just thought this really is the most important thing for philosophers to think about how is it that we Mm. don't think about this because food is Of course, it's not just what's on my plate tonight, but it's what's at the grocery store. Who doesn't have access to a grocery store? You know, how does the food get to the grocery store? Uh, You know, how much does food cost? How much, you know, how much do people know how to cook or not know how to cook? Um, All of the traditions, but then all of the farm policies and the political policies that have to do with... uh, food. And, and I mean, it just, it goes to history and it goes to sociology and it goes to nutrition, but, it, but in philosophy, it goes to self, right? And it's not about understanding statistics and it's not about understanding uh, nutrition. Uh, one of the things that I talk about a lot in the book is this notion that Michael Pollan came up with called nutritionism, uh, which is basically the the reduction of food into its chemical components, rather than it, thinking about it as food, and so right. referring to things like protein and carbohydrates and sugars and you know the the list, um, thinking about protein as chicken and beef and pork rather than chicken and beef and pork, which are radically different kinds of substances. Um, you know, we we call it protein and, and call it a day because that's some sort of chemical property that we have been pushed into thinking about food as. Um, and if we reduce food into its chemical components like that, um, it becomes a science experiment, not, pleasure, not, um, you know, I don't know, it's not, it's not community. It's not, it's not any of the things that food I think really should be. So I think that um, the age of nutritionism has really um, taken away a lot of the meaning of meals and eating together and family time and, and, and then really sort of understanding why we eat. Because it's, yeah, it's not a science problem and it's not a math problem.
0: Yes. Uh, and obviously, science and math will play into it. But the, at the end of the day, those are pretty small contributions to what's really happening. Sure. Um, just a, a couple things. And I, this is one, you know, make sure that we uh, recognize your work. Yeah, I really enjoyed the book. Uh, very accessible, very passionate. And um, kind of a weird compliment, but very earthy. You know, like of, I you know, I want to say sensual, but it's like of the senses, right? Like yeah. it's very well, it uh, like yeah. what you were describing um, with the food lab in, in your kind of teaching method, it definitely comes through in the book. And so I really enjoyed it. Uh, my wife would definitely feel some pain when you're talking about instead of reading new mom books, you started yeah. reading philosophy of food. Yeah. So when we talk about homeschooling for my boys, I'm referencing Jean-Baptiste Vico And Mm -hmm. my wife is just being very patiently listening. (laughs) She's like, if you want to homeschool them, that's fine. Like, why are we? (laughs) Uh, So I felt that. Um, And then uh, it's really interesting that you mention how much work goes into cooking Mm -hmm. and something. Mm -hmm. I had a previous episode on uh, the history of uh, Mexican-American labor in Mm. uh, Southeastern California in agriculture. And it's there's this really interesting, um, in our current society, connection between unpaid or low-paid labor equaling unskilled labor, sure. and how false that is, right? Yeah. Like, cooking, the more I get into it, the it's very complicated. Not and the unskilled. Reason we don't, <laughs> yes, it's not unskilled at
1: all. Growing and so food I think is also not unskilled.
0: That was the exact point that came out again and again, it's that there's just... Tons of work that goes. In. I'm. I'm. I have a small garden in the back, and my. Uh, I have just started it, and my ignorance is overwhelming. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so,
0: but the uh, kind of to bring it back around to what you ended with, I think when you talk about taking food out of its context, a great example of this and making it into these boxes of nutrition. Right. Um, a lot of my own thinking on food uh, has been informed by uh, the Blue Zone. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Way of thinking about food, you know, the different like 90 plus year lifespan type thing. And one of the things that I was excited about, uh, and my wife, you know, chided me for is that most of the places where people live 90 plus in what they eat, they actually drink a lot. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> and if you think of it totally in terms of nutrition, then you actually lose why that works. Because right. the reason it works for them for the most part is they drink together. Right. And it lowers stress. It allows them to be more open with each other. It's not mm-hmm. just that. <laughs> and this is just like a very, I think, silly example, but a really good example of why you can't just take nutrition and just cram. it. it's like, well, you can have these people drink this much alcohol a day. And it's right. like it's it's not like they're drinking alone and then they're drinking it all at right. once. Right. They're drinking it like over the course of the day as they talk with each other. And that's right. a, a great example of like, obviously, no alcohol is not something that's naturally good for the body, at least in any, like not in the amounts they're drinking, but mm-hmm. it is good for them socially. And the benefits seem to outweigh for the, for the most part, seem to outweigh the detriments.
1: Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that's, I mean, if we could lead that into the slow food movement, right. Yeah. That's a lot of what the slow food movement talks about is that it's it, it's not a math problem. It's not a scientific reduction. it's a it's a way of life, and it's it it mm. sort of rejects the nutritionism, but it it recheck, it rejects all of the the ways in which we are um, forced into what they call fast life, right? right. Um, is that we want slow food and slow life uh and and we want to implicitly explicitly reject fast food and fast life. Um, and I, and I think drinking together, eating together, having long meals together, um, not having cell phones while you're eating is it's a huge part of it. One of the other things that I do that I, I talk about in the book some is that I, um, I've i started taking students on a, a study away trip in the month of May, not recently, obviously, but um, we go to Italy. Understandable. Yeah, right. Um, we go to Italy for what's called slow food Italian style. And um, we learn about the the tenets of the slow food movement. Um but we so we spend a week in Rome and learn about the history of slow food and in Rome and Roman food and why all of the, the, the different uh, parts of Italy have such drastically different food. Um, but then we go spend two weeks on a farm, uh, an Italian farm in the mountains that makes olive oil and wine. And um, I think, the, honestly, the most important part of the trip is that there's actually no cell phone service. And no internet in this yep. area, and so the college students have to just sort of abandon their phones. All of a sudden, their phones are absolutely useless. We're at a, a farm on the top of a mountain. We have a giant long table that we sit at every night. They they help to cook. They help to gather. They you know uh, they set the table. And then we sit there for three hours, laughing and telling stories and connecting in a way that many of them have told me later they've never connected before. Mm. And so I just I think food and and being that part of community is is just something that uh, is is really important, uh, and it's it's not something it's not something that I want to let go of easily. And I, I think that uh, the culture that we live in is uh, pushes for us to eat when we feel hungry, maybe graze all day, not have family dinner together, um, or or to be on our phones when we are with other people. It's um I mean, that's one of the things that've I've absolutely pushed with with my boys and with my family is family dinner happens every night. It's it's not a it's just not a question. There's there's no activities that are scheduled in the evening. There's it's just we're going to have dinner together. That's just what we do. Um, And I think that I can already see the the impact of it, just because I know that my boys are going to talk about stuff that they might not talk about otherwise. And they have that feeling of home.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I think that's, you mentioned this earlier and we had talked about this before we began that for me, I had gone through a period of depression that seemed uh, seems to have been very strongly linked to my diet. Mm-hmm. But I, I think you bring up a great point here is that no matter how well I eat, I do notice it's a multivariate thing, right? There's There's sure. multiple things going on where if I sit down with my family and we have family dinner, which is something we try to do, and sometimes fail, but it's something that we try to do, that also leads to well-being. That also gives for uh, very important mental, um, uh, very important for mental health. And so as we talk about this, uh, I I think that all kind of, uh, one of the main things comes out of your book and I think it's the most important is this way that we have very thin goals as a culture. If I can put it Mm -hmm. that way, we have very reductionist goals and so yeah. when we talk about one of the values of our culture is efficiency. And so yes. things like phones at meals, it, why? Well, I'm going to do two things at once because then I'll get more done. Mm-hmm. And, it's, mm-hmm. and we don't realize what we're losing because our idea of the good life is very, very thin. It doesn't have right. this full, broad range of, of personhood. Um, right. so Yeah. And I I did want to ask you this, um, as, as you were going through that chapter, you said there, you wanted to rein back in the idea that there were moral implications for slow food, but it Mm. does seem like there are some moral implications, even as you're talking about this. Do you feel comfortable discussing any possible moral implications or maybe places where we could do further work on what moral implications for slow food could be?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. Can I, can I go ahead and can I read the, the, uh, um, the manifesto?
0: Absolutely. This yeah. is,
1: this is, um, so I've got, I've got the book here and I just wanted to, it's, it's a, you know, it's a full page, but I wanted to read it just because I feel like it's really important. So, yes. um, so the Slow Food The slow food movement came about in 1986 when uh, McDonald's opened the first store in Rome. And it was the first one in Italy. And the Italians were not going to have any of this. They thought this, you know, America can have this, that Italy is not about fast food and it's not about any of the ideology that goes along with fast food. And so they protested with a pasta dinner, right? Uh, they set up right. big long tables in front of this uh, McDonald's and in in front of the Spanish Steps in Rome, and said, "This is this is not happening here." And I can't um, think of
0: anything more Italian.
1: <laughs> I know it just it's I just yeah I, I picture it perfectly. Um, so eventually, after a few years, they were you know there were people who came on the name and they came on and they said look this is slow food this is specifically not fast food and um, so this is the what they what they claim and their sort of their defense of to the right of pleasure in food they say our century which began and has developed under the insignia of industrial civilization first invented the machine and then took it as its life model the machine that is we are enslaved by speed and have all succumbed to the same insidious virus, fast life, which disrupt our habits, pervades the privacy of our homes and forces us to eat fast foods. To be worthy of the name Homo sapiens should rid themselves of speed before it reduces them to a species in danger of extinction. A firm defense of quiet material pleasure is the only way to oppose the universal folly of the fast life. May suitable doses of guaranteed sensual pleasure and slow, long-lasting enjoyment preserve us from the contagion of the multitude who mistake frenzy for efficiency. Our defense should begin at the table with slow food. Let us rediscover the flavors and savors of regional cooking and banish the degrading effects of fast food. In the name of productivity, fast life has changed our way of being and threatens our environment and our landscapes. So slow food is now the only truly progressive answer. That is what real culture is all about, developing taste rather than demeaning it. And what better way to set about this than an international exchange of experiences, knowledge, and projects? Slow food guarantees a better future. Slow food is an idea that needs plenty of qualified supporters who can help turn this slow motion into an international movement with a little tiny snail as its symbol. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I so just laughed yeah. at the
0: snail part. I remember being like, "Oh, well, I mean, I could see why you choose that, but yeah, you know, no, it was I a surprise."
1: Perfect. Well, so you asked about moral implications, right? And I think that right. um, I think that slow food, I mean, so. I want to start with I am an aesthetician. I'm not an ethicist. Um and so what I think about is the the taste, right? And the right. community. Um, and I guess I'm I'm afraid, I don't know, I'm reluctant, we'll just say reluctant, not afraid, sure. um sure. to to talk about moral obligations. Um I, I don't want to say that, but I think that eating a eating sl- a slow food um, is morally better, right? Because you're thinking about, um, you're thinking about the people, uh, who brought you the food. You're thinking about how the food is made and then you're spending, um, uh, quality time with the food when you're eating it, right? And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of morality that comes in that. And at the same time, not everybody can do this, right? Not everybody can eat slow, you know, in in the slow food way, because there are there are lots and lots of people that just don't have access. Um, But slow food is not, you know, high end farm to table, farm to fork, organic downtown restaurant, right? Slow food, especially in Italy, right? I mean, pizza and pasta are flour and water with whatever comes out of the garden or whatever's left in the fridge um put on top of it. I mean that's really the the origination of of both of those uh both of those meals, but um it it has to do with the history of cooking. It has to do with the history of women. It has to do with you know what what's in the garden today. And you said you had a you had a small garden um at, I suspect already you go Wow, if I had to feed myself, I'd be screwed
0: <laughs> yes
1: <laughs>
0: right no it's it's a lot, really yeah wondering. I was like yes yes yeah <laughs> that that's become immediately apparent, yeah,
1: yeah, because we don't have this kind of knowledge, right we don't have we i mean we can't even funk we can't even have like basic gardens in our backyard, um and so there's there's a there's a respect for the knowledge that goes into the history of cooking and the history of growing food um that i i think that we just don't we don't respect it um when mm-hmm. i think and i think that it's hard for me to think really broadly because i deal with college students and i talk to them primarily right so i got 18 to 22 year olds who are very busy right? They have lots and lots of important things to do. They're they're overscheduled. Um, and then they go to the dining hall and they eat. And then somebody else, so they, somebody else prepares it. Uh, they, they go in, they get what they want. And then somebody else does their dishes um, and they go on their way. So they're not prompted to think about it at all, at least while they're here, and depending on what kinds of families they came from. You know, they may or may not have been involved in food prep or whatever. Um, but everybody eats, everybody has favorite foods. everybody has likes and dislikes. Um, but I think there's a, I'll say moral imperative to know how to cook. I think you should I think you should know how to do basic things for yourself. So I think you should I think there's also a moral imperative to do your own laundry. Uh, Because I think it's part of taking care of yourself. And I think, uh, you know, there's, I don't know what's going on with this generation, but there's a whole bunch of people that are having trouble with adulting, right? Because we now actually have (laughs) adulting classes.
0: I, mean, I have but, not seen those. that's
1: oh, really? yeah, no, there's adulting classes. God. You should you look online, but there's <laughs> it's about laundry and it's about finances and it's about waking up with an alarm and it's about what to eat. um and it's about cooking, right? It's about how to mm-hmm. how to actually just do basic things in the kitchen. um and just that in and of itself is so disturbing to me because I don't know I don't know what's happening in American households that would produce young adults who can't show up to a job or can't you know they don't know how the grocery store works or they don't know how to um, you know balance a checkbook whatever the sort of uh, modern day equivalent of that is online. I presume none of them have checkbooks, but um, balance a budget. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, but I think, you know, food is eating is is such a it is such a fundamental part of who we are. And just dismissing all of the stuff that goes into it because low paid workers can do it for me. Right. Is uh, it is something that we're just that we're really missing out on as human beings.
0: And I feel like we're contributing to something um, that w- we are actually not valuing people the way they should be valued. We're taking their skill for granted by, and we're contributing to systems that continue to take them for granted right. when we mm-hmm. uh, participate in those systems. And uh, you obviously can't just withdraw from the world. I mean, you could. You can do the hermit thing, but I wouldn't make that a, a moral imperative. Right. Uh, so it's not that you should never do these things, but being able to... I mean, at the very least, being able to be a responsible adult. If your if your philosophy can't allow for someone to be able to take care of themselves, if they're uh, an able-bodied person, right. being an able, you know, able-minded person seems to be a mistake. Um, you know, it's, it's something. Uh, you know, and even removing it from moral imperatives, the idea of moral consequences seems to come out a lot. Mm-hmm. And so, one of the things I, I love even about the way you frame it and the way that comes out and the way slow. You know, slow food, obviously, is very polemical, you know, to fast life, as they call it. Yeah. But there is kind of this very positive view of it, right? This way that, like, if you sit down and eat with your family, good things happen. Mm -hmm. And it creates this. And if we and the the problem is and the reason this is so hard is our culture is against it in America. And besides that, it takes time to see the benefits. Mm hmm. It right it takes like you have to do stuff like this for months before you really start to see the fruit of it and sure. it's very frustrating and you have to make clear decisions to to do these sorts of things mm-hmm. um well so and i that's, think that yeah,
1: you know that because sense. not every dinner is great right not every conversation <laughs> yeah. at dinner is great right not every yes. night are you gonna get your kids to eat what you just spent time fixing right um but at the same As the time, father of a
0: 4 and 7 year old, yeah. that really hurt. I'm just yeah. going to tell you. I mean,
1: <laughs> you, you get me, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, but it's it's not going to be that way, but you know, at the same time, I think for me, it's a value, right? And it's a it's a it's a value that I say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to set up my household so that this is a value and everybody knows even implicitly that this is just what we're gonna do. I mean, there are people who say, going to church is a value. And so we're gonna set up our household so that we do this thing together as a family, even when the kids are crying, even when there's a diaper blowout, even, you know, what, whatever, right? Even when it's awful, right? Even when there's a guest minister, you know it's like this is a value and it's worth doing over and over and over because i've just decided that it's important to me um yes and and
0: that that, go ahead. sorry go ahead
1: no as you can say as a family unit you make decisions like this about all kinds of things right um and eating together can be one
0: yes and if you don't have any of these values right if it's just you're constantly separated and constantly on screens. Uh, we have seen the studies on that, right? So sure. whether it's you know going to church, going to a mosque or a synagogue, like you look at these sorts of things, um, choosing to do family vacation, uh, right. just being willing to look at your culture and to see what values are being pushed on you mm-hmm. and, what, val- and what, what those values you accept and which you reject. And I mean, that goes back to just the examined life in, in general.
1: Right. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: Which is kind of a for me, an interesting lead into I I did want to hear your thoughts. I I loved your chapter on good taste and bad taste. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on the value of taste as a sense. And, you know, obviously, it's it the the cultural production of taste, which is a a different sense of taste. Right. And then, uh, and also the the prejudice against taste. I found that uh, account interesting, you know, throughout the history of philosophy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, um, so there's, you know, there's few, there's food, right. There's sort of the stuff that we ingest and taste, which is us and the way that we respond to things individually that we put in our mouths. Um, and there's preferences for certain things and aversions to certain things. But, um, I really do uh, believe that there is a cultivation of taste Um, of what I would call tongue taste, not cultural taste, and that um, it is an epistemological thing that we can develop, right? That we can get better at making fine discriminations about very certain things. I mean, and fine discriminations is a a word or a phrase that David Hume used in the Standard of Taste, Um, but I think that it very much applies here where where we can not just eat our favorite ice cream over and over, but learn about things that do have um, uh, very subtle differences in them. Wine is the, the most often cited sort of, and it's probably the most complex Uh, thing that we taste regularly and so people become experts and people get flights and they taste differences and they do wine tastings and they learn to compare and they you know they, they learn what they like um but the the level of expertise that that high level sommeliers are able to achieve the differences that they can discriminate is is just astounding um but there are, uh, I think I mentioned this in the book, but there I mean there are sommeliers that for water, for cheese, for olive oil, for for all kinds of things. Um, and so even if you're not a wine connoisseur or don't have access to lots of fancy different wines, which most people don't, um, you can you can learn to discriminate. In, in every day. I, mean, I was just up in North Carolina in the mountains with my kids. And uh, my son asked me, he said, you know, mom, does the water taste funny here? Or can I drink it straight? Because that, you know, a lot of times I don't like the water. That's <laughs> not, you know, it's not in Greenville, you know, and I'm like, yeah, he he knows already that water tastes different in different place. Um, and, yes. and he can start to figure out what is it? about where we are now that is in the water that makes it taste different than at home, right? Yeah, Florida Um,
0: water is not very good. I'm just gonna be honest. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Greenville, (laughs) South Carolina water is the best. Uh, And I've actually seen, I've seen accountings of, you know, the best tasting water in the country and we really are like top 10. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah, no, it's good. Shout out to
0: Greenville, yes. Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, one of the things that I talk about a lot in the book is olive oil, actually. And um, right. partly because I, I did a lot of this research in Italy. That's that's their that's their shining gold. But and, and anyone in Italy, no matter where they are, will tell you that they have the best olive oil. And everybody else will say that they have the best olive oil, but really, they have the best olive oil. And of whether course, yes. whether you're in east, south, north, or west, that's what they'll tell you, and they will be absolutely confident that it's true. Um, and it's they vary because they they the region varies or the terroir varies, right? The whole climate and the whole geography of where the olives are grown is different. And so the olive oil will be different. Um, And so it's, I I love that it's just such a source of pride for the Italians, but it's also something that we as Americans, we go, well, what, you know, how do I get good olive oil? I'll just pay a lot. Well, no, I mean, you, you actually have to be able to taste the difference in order for it to mean anything. Right. And it's just it's just like wine. You don't just buy the most expensive bottle of wine. If if you can't tell the difference that it's better, then there's no point in buying something that's expensive. If you can taste olive oil and go, oh, my gosh, that's really good or peppery, which is really the, the prime uh, thing that you're looking for in a good olive oil, um, mm-hmm. then you should then you should buy it. The other thing that's really important about olive oil is that it's uh, it's fresh, right? And so unlike all other vegetable oils, olive oil is made from the flesh of the fruit and not the seed or the pit. And so it's it's actually like a it's actually fruit juice. And so just like I, I probably wouldn't want to eat orange drink orange juice that's three years old. I don't wanna have olive oil that's three years old either. I wanna I want to know that it's fresh. It doesn't, honestly, it doesn't matter where in the world it comes from. I just don't want it to be old and rancid. Um, and so well, that most, would, yes. Yeah, I mean, most <laughs> olive oil in American kitchens is old and rancid. But given that we don't mm. taste it or we don't know how to taste, um, we don't know and then it doesn't matter, right? um but the there's there's all these health benefits that come with good fresh olive oil that don't come with old olive oil or olive oil that has been diluted with other kinds of oil um or oil that has been uh combined with oils from all over the world olive oil is the most adulterated substance on earth and only about two percent of the olive oil that is sold is actually a hundred percent fresh extra virgin olive oil
0: yeah I, I i was i remember reading that and just thinking you so right, <laughs> <that's>... <laughs> right exactly that, not not a good day um yeah absolutely i I did want to ask you, and you mentioned Hume, and then there's this really interesting, and it's a very complex discussion, so I don't expect like a, a full explanation of this on the spot, but uh, you know, Kant talks about how we process perception, mm. and so uh, when you talk about wine and how it's the most complex tasting, a lot of that comes back to the culture that's been built around it in training our taste to distinguish the wine. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not that wine itself. I mean, uh, it's obviously more complex than a lot than other than many other things. But there are things that are as complex as wine in terms of tasting that you could figure out something like olive oil would probably be pretty close. Mm -hmm. Um, But what really distinguishes wine is the culture that's been built around it to refine that judgment.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Do you have any thoughts in that regard?
1: I mean, in terms of Kant?
0: Well, more in terms of that, like how, how that, uh, that culture interacts with that, that development of judgment.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I I won't make you, I won't make you give a, (laughs) I wouldn't ask for a reading of Kant off, off the cuff. I think that's. No, I mean, no, I, I, I
1: I just taught all this stuff. So it's not, it's not that far gone. Um, Kant actually, I'll, I'll give you a little thought on Kant and then another thought on, on the culture built up around it. Um, Kant actually says specifically in the analytic of the beautiful that um, things that we eat and drink are not available to be beautiful. And that's what, I mean, that's what he's thinking. He's talking about the, the sublime and the beautiful, um, right. but he says they can't be beautiful because we don't have any objectivity. We don't have any distance to reflect on it, right? So basically he says, we can't think about things that we eat or drink because they're in our mouths. Um, and so we can only, things that uh, things that are beautiful or sublime have to be things that we look at with our eyes and our ears, basically. Um, and so that's part, it's part of one of the the history of sort of why taste is not respected all that well is because um, Hume and Kant say, you know, we can't, We can't give the highest uh, appreciation of taste to things that we ingest. Um, But so so he would he would reject this particular discussion out of hand anyway. But right. The 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 larger culture around wine, we'll we'll say we'll we'll leave it to wine. um, It does. It influences uh, the way that we think about it greatly right and there's a lot of um there's the the sort of um stay-at-home mom wine culture right well um and there's uh i'm working really hard so i need to go drink culture and there's (laughs) i I mean there's you know there's a lot of that and then there's you know and then there's a lot less sort of sober culture that says, you know, I don't, I don't need this out of desperation, right? I'm going to drink it when I can enjoy it. Um, but there's, um, I think that there's a lot of pressure now. In that, I don't know how much, uh, how much culture is pushing us to really develop tastes about what we like. Right, and I think that um, you know, white Zinfandel, which is a, a a manufactured blended wine that that came out of Sutter Home, I think. Um, that's it's what I might call a starter wine, right? Um, it's it's easy, it's not complex, and it's it's something that a lot of women, especially, will start with and say, okay, that's you know, that's my thing, and maybe maybe not get more complex. It's usually relatively inexpensive, and so you drink it when you're just drinking to drink um and it's it's not um you know it's not particularly masculine it's not going to be something that a, a bunch of men sitting around in the backyard are going to be out drinking a bunch of white zin right <laughs> there's but part of me
0: now that wants to make that like i don't have an instagram account but i want to make that instagram post yeah,
1: just to, I, a
0: bunch of guys <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, right. I mean, it's just not a thing.
0: <laughs> right. It's true. But,
1: but there's the, you know, so there's that that sort of culture, right. But the culture around wine, I think, has a lot to do with class. Um,
2: yeah. we mentioned
1: that quite a bit. Says, right. So I, I can drink the grocery store wine with my lady friends. Or I can order a nice glass at dinner, which is going to be a little more. You're talking about 8, 10, 20 bucks, you know, for a nice glass of wine. Or I order a bottle at dinner, which is even more. And then above that, it's I'm interested in tasting, right? I'm going to go to the Biltmore Estate and do a wine tasting. Um, And I I think it's 100% class, right? It's 100%. I have access to these slight variations of flavor that maybe I can detect, right? And maybe I'll go buy a bottle if I'm at the Biltmore house um, or wherever. That's what's close here.
0: Yes, um, yeah. Well, and you, you mentioned all this and I think one of the things, you, you talk about locale quite a bit and class becomes a bigger issue the further you are from the locale, Sure, right? Because it, like wine in central florida it becomes much more of a, a class thing because it's the vineyards in in florida are not like <laughs> you know like that's someone who's like reaching out and has access to wine from california wine from right. italy or france versus like if you live in france and you live in the countryside even if you're you're gonna have access to probably a better quality of wine just by For- virtue of where you live
1: yeah and what they would call table wine, right? It's just sort of the the stuff we have laying around is is better than most everything that we have here, just because they make it there.
0: Right, right. Um, and so that's you know, <laughs> yeah, it, it's really fascinating. And I think that discussion about you know terroir. I um, just butchered that, but <laughs> terroir, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> terroir. Uh, thank you. Um, and locales is, is really fascinating. And the way that, um, you know, like as we become more globalized, uh, it just creates further inequities and clear disparities between classes and what they have access to. Sure. Right. Um, and, I, so, and that's what you're referencing in terms of like, uh, I think you mentioned how aristocrats uh, as wine kind of came out, had more access to this is in your discussion of bad taste, I believe. They had more access because they had more time. They had more free time and more time to, you know, kind of fritter away. And so uh, that became kind of this idea of of bad taste that they were like, they weren't constrained by any kind of good goal with it. They would just <laughs> just kind of experiment and just rely solely on the pleasure.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, something you can do when you've got money. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Yeah, th- that uh, discussion seemed to me uh, especially interesting. And you, you mentioned, and I'd love for you just to, to talk about this, that we don't need, um, you talked about philosophy often focuses on how to constrain pleasure. And you said, uh, and I, I don't want to misquote you here, I, I should have brought it up, but I don't want to go digging for it, how you don't think that that's really a great way to go about it is to focus on, the, on constraining pleasure.
1: Do mm-hmm.
0: you talk a little bit more about that conclusion for you?
1: Yeah, I think that um, I think that philosophy has a history of uh, demeaning the body, right? Specifically, right? Philosophy is all about what you know. What can we think about? What are our moral obligations? What you know? How do we how do we produce consciousness? Um, and I think bodily experience uh, is it's associated with women, for one. It's um, it's associated with basically um, inebriation and sex, right. So those are the two things that uh, philosophers think that the body really does, right. So you feed it in in order to just keep consciousness going. but um, the the real risk of losing control, losing rationality is with inebriation and sexual pleasure. And so I think that those are the, those are the things that I, that I have found in the history of philosophy, where they just go, body is bad, the body is bad, the body is bad, it's dangerous, it's, you know, it's subversive, it's, you know, and then one of the things that I, I don't find in the history of philosophy is, you know, any sort of discussion of the embodied experience of being pregnant and giving birth. Right. So, I mean, that's not something that philosophers have historically talked about, but obviously it's something that we've done for centuries. And if we haven't, then we wouldn't have been here. But I mean, that in and of itself is an incredible phenomenological experience. Right. To grow another person in your body. Right. It's it's amazing. And and then to get that little person out, and then to watch that little person grow, right? And they grow proportionately, and and you know because you have small ones, right? Is they you put them down for bed one day, and the next night they're you know the next day they're actually just bigger, right? How does that how does that happen? But they they don't grow, you know, unpro improportionately. They they just. They grow and they get bigger and bigger overnight. And right, that this experience is, is never talked about in terms of bodily pleasure. Right, breastfeeding certainly isn't talked about in terms of a bodily pleasure. Um, you know, it's not like Just you're trying gonna- to
0: imagine that in Aristotle. <laughs>
1: Yeah, right i mean it just doesn't it doesn't come up but it's i mean that's a thing right it it feels yeah, good yeah. to let that you know that that thing that has been stored up release um and but what philosophers do talk about is how getting drunk is gonna destroy our capacity for reason and i i don't i mean i don't know sexual orgies which is somehow this other thing that they talk about Quite a lot is is, ma- is going to make us lose our sort of physical boundaries, um, and I just think I you know I think it's I think it's crazy. But it, but then the other thing is just sort of what happens when we overindulge in food, right? And so for philosophers, it it often becomes a it's a it's a moral problem that you get fat. Right. Or that you that you're overweight or that what you're eating is causing you to not be rational. Right. Or even causing you to be depressed. Um, I mean, I I think, you know, we have an epidemic of obesity in our country that could be uh, helped, I'll say, with some radical changes in diet. And most people would say, I would rather continue eating the way I eat and die earlier, right? And, you know, philosophically, this is, it's crazy, right? Because philosophically, what we really want to do is to just be able to think clearly and experience things and try to make sense of them, right? But to say, you know, to just really deny the The body's role in all of that, but but practically, if we ate a more plant based diet, uh, well, I would say even literally one day a week, you know it would it would help the environment, it would help the farmers, it would help uh you know it would help the ground, it would help transportation costs, it would help us immensely. But we're not willing to do it. We just right. we won't do it.
0: And there's a cultural uh, built-up taste around that about why that's not okay. That's right. actually, I think, has some moral implications that I think are unhealthy. But that's that's a uh, I understand it, it becomes very complicated because you think about access and things like that. And I understand that. Yeah. Um, I have to reference this because I remember reading uh, the perfect example which you're talking about in regards to uh, that focus on being rational and all this. I remember reading when I was around like 16, I was just getting into philosophy and I was reading like a a history of philosophy and it was talking about Aristotle's prime mover Mm -hmm. and uh, that what the most perfect being in the world is the one who just sits there and thinks. And I was like, even at 16, I was like, that's awfully convenient for Aristotle to say that that's the greatest being of all time. It's like, you really like to think and man, you know, who's really perfect is the guy who just thinks all the time. I was like, that's seems a little self gratifying.
1: Thinking, thinking about (laughs) thinking. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. I uh, Okay, I mean, and that's, you know, he's part of the, the groundwork of philosophical, you know, philosophical thinking is that we are, Disembodied minds with bodies that you know we just kind of have to drag along with us, but I just I just think that that's that's really short sighted, and I don't understand why more philosophers haven't said, "Hey, this is really dumb." (laughs) Right? You know, it's like actually working bodies, not incidentally, but always and necessarily. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What we eat the quality of what we eat, how much we eat, who with we eat, you know, it all has an impact on how well we think. right? and we i mean it's there's all this discussion about we have to feed school children so that they can do basic things in school and if they're hungry, they're not going to learn anything. right? but when Generally when do we speaking, have yeah. those discussions about adults
0: Yeah. Well, and we probably should should have more discussions about. Sorry, go ahead.
1: Yeah. Well, but you graduate to philosophy, and and then they say, oh, the the body doesn't matter at all.
0: (laughs) Right. Like, what just happened? Um, Also, I can't help but you know, I have to ask: Is the next book a phenomenology of pregnancy? Because that would Uh, be cool.
1: No. No. I, (laughs) I mean. There are there are actually a few articles I've read about it, but I, I I don't honestly think that I have um I don't I don't have any really profound thoughts about pregnancy other than damn that was cool. Like <laughs> that was way better than I thought it would be. <laughs> I I loved That's being a, pregnant, yeah. and I loved having hmm. little kids. Um, and I, you know, it it really was just it was amazing to me to just watch that happen. But no, the next book is a, is called Drinking and Thinking. Actually, it's about um, things that we drink, uh, including tea, coffee, wine, spirits, beer, and how culturally all of those things are um, really, really different and how they do different things to us cognitively.
0: Oh, that's fascinating as well. Uh, um, I have to ask, is it drinking and thinking with the yes. apostrophes or is it? Yes. Dr- oh yes. As it should be, as it should be.
1: Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, I am in South Carolina.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah. You, you have to respect your terroir. i I think yes. I still butchered it.
1: <laughs> yes. Drinking and thinking.
0: But yes, yes. Um, that's, that's awesome. Uh, kind of as we wrap up here, I, I was wondering, uh, what would you like to leave um, our listeners with? If you could leave them with one thing, what would you leave our listeners with?
1: Hmm. Wow, that's, like a, that's the biggest question. I mean,
0: right, let me, let me make a very a reductionist, efficient, uh, you know, ask for something very reductionist and efficient here at the end. Yeah, yeah. Just to contradict everything we've been saying. <laughs>
2: You should, you should
1: travel. Maybe that's, hmm. maybe that's it. Is, is, uh, you know, traveling and, eat, you know, finding, uh, finding food in another culture or in another community is an incredible way to go out beyond yourself, right? And so hmm. even if you, if you go to the the next state, um, you don't have to go you know to another continent but you 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 just go to another community eating and sharing their food with them is an incredible way to enter into their culture um and to continue to go to fast food because it's familiar and because it's easy and because we know it is uh is an outward rejection of all all these sort of um, small communities or households or uh, cultural knowledge that we have. And even in the South, um I mean, we have an incredible history of, you know we we have this incredible culinary history um that was, of course, it, it embroiled in slavery. But the foods and the knowledge and the skills that the slaves brought over and gifted us against their will in the South is absolutely incredible. Um, But to be able to go to a culture and to share their food is, it's it's a way of respecting, but it's also a a way of coming to know other other people and other lands.
0: Absolutely. That was pretty profound, yeah, I, right? Oh no, I loved it. Yeah. That was I, <laughs> uh, you know, I've been blessed to travel and you know, to kind of go along with what you're saying, uh the way I learned to now, we we do have access that I think while still slightly class based is not as much the internet is becoming more and more ubiquitous. Yeah. Um, I learned to like I learned all my cooking from YouTube. Yeah. And something that you even mentioned is uh you there are communities online where you can learn to cook i'll say authentically but like anything I, I was looking in the grocery store for things or ordering things from amazon that i had no idea what they were and it it just um taking the time to do that was just was huge and i think you're exactly right it's a great way to embody yourself in another culture in a, yeah. in a meaningful way so yeah well, thank you for sharing
1: there's, there's also you know sort of Embody yourself in your own culture, right? Ask your grandma for a recipe, right? If you can, ask your grandma to teach you how to cook something, you know, with her, um, if 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 you can. But yes. you know, those are those are um, cultural knowledge that that we have that we often overlook in the in our own families right? Um, and I think just cooking together and being together can be life-changing, really can.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dr. Worth, I just want to say thank you so much. Uh, we'll of course put a link to your book down in the description, but it's just been a real, uh, it's been a real joy. So thank you for joining oh, thank us Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.